I feel like this morning I want to get like a big ugly cry out of the way just so we can get all that done with and I can move on with the message. And I've done that before, trust me. I've had the ugly crying up in here and right up standing up here in the pulpit. But I'd like to, um, it's a tearful morning in many ways. If you're joining us for the first time, you're kind of parachuting into this and you may be like, man, it's an emotional bunch. Well... I'm telling you, when you're baptizing your children, that's something that's really a, a joyful moment. When you're witnessing it, it's joyful. Um, some of our families sent off some of their kids to college this week, and we haven't done that yet. Evan's not quite that age, so we haven't gone through that, that um, sadness, joy and sadness. You're joyful for your kid, but sad, I'm sure. I, uh, I saw Aaron Adele this week in, in the office, and I asked her, I said, how y'all doing? And I said, I, I'll be praying for y'all this week. She said, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and that's kind of the way I feel this morning, because we're sending some folks off this morning. And uh, that's another reason that we're emotional, because they're dear. And um, they're beginning a great journey. It's always easier to go. As hard as you think it is to go, it's always easier to go than it is to stay. I promise you. So uh, we'll see if we can get through this. Um, we're glad you're here and joining us this morning, visitors. Uh, I know you're, um, I hope and pray that if you're here for baptisms or here just visiting, looking for a church home, I hope and pray that you're blessed in how we spend our time together this morning. Let's pray. God, this morning, what beautiful testimonies just so thankful for the, um, the event. It's more than a, a symbol, but the event of baptism. Thankful that we can make a good con- or, uh, an appeal to you for a good conscience through a work that was so fine and so complete that by your grace and your mercy that you can bestow that forgiveness on us so that we can approach your throne boldly. What a marvelous, marvelous piece of good news. I'm so thankful that we have adults and children that are coming to that good news and enjoying that good news and walking in that, faithfully testifying to their faith in Christ through baptism. We're thankful that you show up in that moment and that you reckon a couple little boys this morning and a young woman you reckon them yours. You are theirs and they are yours. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. We are so thankful. We pray for these three journeys of faith as they step out walking with you. Uh, Lord, too, this morning, I want to pray for another church, uh, a new church. I want to pray for a cross point community church that is about to be delivered. I pray for her pastors. And their families. Lord, I pray for these men that you would work in them, grow in them, and remind in them the importance of being a husband first, a father second, and a pastor third. Lord, I pray that you would, through this work and this new work in Rockwall, that you would equip a people to be salty, bright, and aromatic. God, we are thankful for the journey that we've had with these families. 
We pray for them now that they'll be sent off well in these next few minutes, in these last few minutes that we've spent together. We entrust this time to you, Lord. We're thankful for your word, thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit, that we have so much nourishment that we can take in these next few minutes. I pray that you'll do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to the book of Ephesians. We have been in the book of Ephesians the last couple of months, and we are in, um, still in the first chapter, we're in verses 15 through 19 this morning. Paul is praying for the Ephesian church. He's been enjoying God out loud, enjoying what God has done for us in Christ, the many spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing he calls it in these first few verses. And then in verse 15, he moves from this vertical enjoyment of God to this horizontal intentionality and praying for these people that he loves and cares about. And what he prays for is where we've been camped out the last few weeks. We've been considering the fact that he prays for knowledge. He doesn't pray for health. He doesn't pray for a new job. He doesn't pray for um, a relationship to get worked out or anything like that. There's nothing in the world, absolutely nothing in the wrong world wrong with praying for those things. We should pray for those things. But really, I think what we're getting these last few weeks and what we're continuing to get this morning is really what ought to be the heart of our prayer for one another. He's praying for knowledge of God. And he gives three real nice, tidy, linear things that we're going to see almost as formulaic this morning, morning, formulaic this morning. Three wonderful things that we ought to be praying for in each other's lives. He draws out in this passage, and we've been considering these last couple of weeks. So I'll read our passage, and we'll just dive right into it. Beginning in verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit. This would be the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That speaking of the Holy Spirit, in the knowledge of Him. And here specifically, the three things that He's praying for in knowledge of God. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, here's the first one, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We spent a Sunday on that a couple of weeks ago. Really a wonderful, wonderful reality of the hope to which we've been called. And the second thing we spent last week and we'll spend this morning on is secondly, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And then third in verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us? who believe. We'll consider that next week. But this morning we're considering the second sermon on just this little phrase, this second of three things that Paul prays for in this church, the ways that they will know God. Secondly, that they will know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Last week we considered, I feel like something that we really have to build into our people, something that we really need to work in understanding is that we are his inheritance. That's not something that was built into me. It was not language that I'm familiar with. So this passage, considering this last Sunday and a few Sundays ago when we were in verse 11 and verse 14, considering the reality that we are his inheritance. We are in fact the riches scandalous word, the riches of glorious, another scandalous word, inheritance in the saints. Now this morning, we're going to consider the other side of that coin. I want you to think about the truths that we considered last week and what we're considering this morning as two sides of a coin. 
Here's how I want you to consider hearing this passage and how we're going to climb into it for the rest of this morning. This week, we're considering this passage read this way. The riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints. I'm going to develop this for a moment, but what we're going to be talking about this morning is not us as his inheritance, which is true. We established that last week. But the flip side of that is what inheritance that he is going to bestow and has bestowed on us. Let me develop this a little bit. First of all, let's look at this, consider this possessive pronoun, his. Last week we considered that his glorious inheritance is referring to the inheritance that is for him. So that possessive applies. But this morning, think of it like his glorious inheritance that he actually owns. And now this word in this preposition, in the saints, this word in can very easily, just as easily, be translated among And if you do that, if you go through that little maneuver there, which is not gymnastics at all, if you've ever studied the Greek language at all, you know it's very appropriate, then it reads totally different, has a totally different meaning. It's the other side of the coin. Last week is we are his. This week is he is mine. We're speaking about the inheritance that he bestows on us. Now, I know I got a bunch of L3 engineer types in the room. Let me just go ahead and shoot the elephant for a bunch of engineers. You may be troubled by the idea of an opposite approach to last week's message. That we're doing the opposite approach. But I want all the engineers in here to know that who just absolutely have to have one black and white right answer. I get it. I'm wired the same way, though I'm not an engineer. I get it. I like black and white answers. But Hebrew and Greek interpretation and translation isn't like math. And there's room, in this passage especially, for both to be true. It's two sides of one coin having to do with inheritance. We sung it this morning. I am his and he is mine. We sang it last week. My portion is you. I remember last week I mentioned we could flip that around for the last week's message, that he is our portion or that we are his portion. But now we flip that around back to how we sung it last week. My portion is you. What we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at a few other passages that build the case for reading this and understanding this passage this way. But I want you to understand, if you're troubled by the flip side of this passage from one passage having two meanings, I want you to appreciate that there is a strong case, biblical case, for both things being true. And the ambiguity of that preposition, either being in or among, gives us room for both to be right and both to be known, both to be embraced, both to be celebrated, and from this pulpit for both to be preached a week apart from one another. So that's what we're going to do. So if you... Examples of support. Turn to Colossians. I have four passages I'd like for you to turn to this morning, and this is the first of those four passages. Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I'll share with you, there is much, many, voluminous Old Testament passages that develop the concept of God's people being due and inheritance. That's the whole concept of the promised land. And who, who, is, who gets what? Which, 
which people get what section as it's divvied up. This inheritance language is very familiar with God's people receiving an inheritance in the Old Testament. And here are some New Testament examples of that. Just a couple. Colossians chapter 1 is a great place to go. The book of Colossians is a great place to go if we want to understand and try and get at what Paul is getting at over, over here in Ephesians. Because Colossians, the language of Colossians, is very much parallel to the language of Ephesians. There are whole sections in Colossians that you could read and think, I'm reading Ephesians. And this is one of those, those sections in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 11. And so from the day we heard... We have not ceased to pray for you. Think about what Paul has just said over in Ephesians. I'm praying for you ceaselessly. And here over in Colossians, he's saying, I'm praying for you. And look at verse 11, some of the things he's praying for. I'm praying that may you be strengthened with all power. That's what we're going to consider next week that he's praying over there in Ephesians. According to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The language of this passage is very clearly speaking about an inheritance that God's people are due. One, in fact, that we will share in. Romans chapter 8 is another example. You can turn there if you're quick and you just absolutely need to see it. Or you can just listen. Listen to this language of Romans chapter 8, verse 16. Also dealing with this concept of an inheritance that God's people are due. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. We are heirs. Heirs of God. His due an inheritance. And fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We are heirs of God. We are due an inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ from this passage. And we are of, of an inheritance that is due his children. That's the side of the coin we're looking at this morning. Very strong biblical case for that understanding of inheritance. We are speaking this morning about an inheritance that is being bestowed on us. I don't have to work real hard at establishing a case for that, so I'm not going to. What I want to do instead in these next few minutes is I want us to consider what is the inheritance that we're due. Anybody interested in that? Anybody want to know? Anybody want to imagine that you're sitting in a, a lawyer's office and you're reading, and he is reading a will where you are hearing, ah, oh, man, I had no idea I was an heir, and I had no idea that I was due some riches. That's what we're going to talk about in these next few minutes. What are we due? What did Paul want the Ephesians to know? And what does God want us to know? Think of it like the reading of a will where you are the benefactor. First, we'll deal with some, some adjectives. Turn to 1 Peter. I have four more passages, so I'm sorry. But they're all really close together. And they're out back all toward the back of the Bible these next few passages where we're going to turn. 1 Peter chapter 1. Reading a will. Here's what you do. Somebody died. Now, the beauty for our story is they're also risen. But just imagine, somebody died that's dear to us, 
and now we're reading a will of what you're due. First, we're going to start with some adjectives. We're going to climb into the nouns here in a moment and get to the dollar signs, okay? We're going to talk about some adjectives, first of all, that sort of develop the nature of the inheritance that we're due. First, this comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. And listen, you remember a moment ago I said these three things that Paul prayed for in the Ephesian church were almost formulaic? Listen to this passage in 1 Peter. It's like Peter and Paul are comparing notes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm wondering if these three things we ought not intentionally build into the church if our early church fathers and the apostles have it on their lips as hope, inheritance, and power. Hope, inheritance, and power. Is that what you think about when you're praying for one another? Or is that what you're thinking about when you want to disciple a new believer? Hope, inheritance, and power. Paul apparently feels like they're very important and essential to even knowing God. And here Peter apparently is considering all three things just as important. Hope, inheritance, and power. But look at what he says about this inheritance. He says this inheritance is imperishable. It is undefiled and it is unfading, kept in heaven for you. Those are some sweet adjectives dealing with the nature, sort of the flavor of this inheritance that we are due. Apparently, it is quite durable, unlike any other inheritance that you could ever receive or any other thing that you could ever own or any other thing that you could ever wear, your human body. Every single thing that we know, period, is decaying and declining and doing the opposite of these adjectives right here. It's fading. So knowing that there's something in store for us that is doing something altogether different than everything else that we could possibly even know should be a sweet encouragement to you. Those are some welcome adjectives, I would think. Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We can say about this inheritance that we are due that it is durable and it is sure. Now we're going to collect some nouns. We're going to look at some dollar signs. Here's, here's, here's what you actually do. Let's look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. Now these next three verses, I want you to sort of keep your finger in these passages. And you'll understand why later. Maybe put a little bookmark in these three passages. Put a little tab. Put a little doily whatever you carry your Bible around in. You may have all that kind of crazy, a bookmark that your kid made or whatever. Stick this in these three passages. Here's the first of three as we collect some nouns. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. 
apparently one of the nouns of our inheritance is that we will be transformed physically to be like him. Consider this passage from Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and, we, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. One of the beautiful realities of our inheritance is that we will be transformed to be like him. We will be transformed into new heavenly bodies. No more cavities. Any kids happy about that? I'm happy about that. I don't know why. Every time I went to the dentist, I, I only brushed my teeth for like three seconds when I was a kid. So I don't know why this happened. But every time I went, I got a new cavity. Man. I like the thought of no cavities. I like the thought of no more back pain for those who are near and dear to you who may suffer with back pain every single day, every single hour. Anybody? No more eye strain for those of you who struggle with eye strain. No more migraines. No more headaches. No more knee pain. Anybody got bad knees? No more arthritis. Those who might be near and dear to you or you might suffer with arthritis. We should celebrate that our inheritance involves a whole new body that does not experience decay. I read this morning, that, and I've, I've read this before, the, dates were, the, the ages were a little bit off, but I read this morning that up until the age of 18, that you are creating more cells than are dying in your body. There are more new cells that are being formed than are dying in your body. And between 18 and, tw- and 25, they're about even. And from 25 on, <laughs> that's some bad news. 25 on, I heard, first, years ago I read that it was 30, but apparently this was 25 on, more cells in your body are dying than are being created. That can't be good. <laughs> I mean, that's every cell in your body is decaying more than it is repairing and improving and being replaced. So getting a new heavenly body, a new transformed body is a welcome noun. Here's the next passage. Turn to Revelation chapter 21. These next two passages are neighbors of each other in Revelation 21 and 22. Let's collect collect a few more wonderful nouns having to do with the inheritance that we are due. Revelation 21 beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Peter tells us in 2 Peter that it's all going to be burned up with a deluge of fire. You know, the rainbow promises he's never going to deluge the earth with water again, but there's no promise that he's not going to deluge the earth with something else. And Peter, in 2 Peter, tells us that he's going to deluge the earth with fire, and this earth as we know it, and all the elements, in fact, will be burned up and consumed, and a new heavens and new earth will be part of our inheritance. Isaiah chapter 65 has beautiful imagery having to do with the new heavens and new earth where the lion and lamb lay together and the lion eats hay like an ox. The adder doesn't kill the kid as he plays with it and pulls him from his hole. It's beautiful imagery of peace in this new heavens and new earth. The first earth had passed away, the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, 
adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. All the tears that have been shed this morning, that may be shed before the morning is over, will be gone. All the tears will be wiped away from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Anybody else want to celebrate that? Anybody lost somebody too soon? I don't know if there is such thing as not losing somebody where it still surprises you. I've, I've been part of people's lives when they've lost a loved one. It's been in their 90s. And it still surprises you. It still catches you off guard because we weren't made for death. And the promise of this inheritance, this beautiful inheritance that we're due, is no more tears, no more death. Neither shall there be any mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. There's some beautiful nouns in there. A, a, a new heaven, a new earth. You know, I'm going to be really honest with you. Greenville is not my favorite place to live topographically. It's my favorite place to live because of y'all, frankly. I ain't going to lie to you, Christian. And emphasis, bad grammar for emphasis. I ain't going to lie to you. When Christy and I first moved here, we imagined living in the hill country or in the mountains somewhere, and we're like, oh, Greenville. But, you know, honestly, we thought, well, this will be kind of our first stop. You know, this will be our first church. And we'll, I don't have my glasses on. And we'll see where God takes us next, you know. And maybe he'll take us to the hill country where we can really live happily for the rest of our lives. <laughs> and here we are in year 13, still in Greenville, and loving y'all, but not really loving the topography of Greenville very much. So this has comforted us so many times. And we remind each other so many times when we vacation in Yellowstone or we travel and we go, man, I really wish we could plant a church here or something. There we go. No, that's all right. We got the new heavens and new earth coming, and it's going to be better than the hill country. It's going to be better than anything this world has ever known. This thing's going to be deluged with fire, and it's going to be even better. I suspect that there's going to be critters. Isaiah 65 tells us that it's beautiful imagery. I don't think that would be there unless there actually will be some beautiful critters and life and fishing. And I don't know if you can hunt because there's no more death. So I don't know what happens. You just, <laughs> you just bruise them or something. I don't know. <laughs> But it's going to be awesome. So I'm reading these kind of things, guys. No more. New heavens and new earth. The holy city coming down out of, out of heaven. The new Jerusalem. There, I think there's really going to be a literal city, apparently. But this imagery seems to lean more toward the city, the dwelling place of God, being the church. The church is referred to as the bride. And the people of God are referred to as the bride. But there are some pretty significant, uh, tangible dimensions giving to this New Jerusalem. So it's apparently going to be pretty spectacular. And then some, some verb, or excuse me, some nouns that won't be there. No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more anxiety for those of you that really resonated with last week's sermon. No more of that. No more fear. No more pain. No more sadness. No more confusion. No more depression. Anybody? Anybody struggle with relentless depression? Celebrate that in the inheritance that you are due, it's gone. It's gone. Now, let's look at Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2. 
Just grab a couple more nouns. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We want to you know, grab a couple more nouns here, really spectacular, wonderful nouns that we can imagine how glorious this new heavens and new earth is going to be. There's going to be a river of life that's bright and flowing from the throne. And then a tree of life on either side of the river, the tree that apparently Adam and Eve should have eaten from, but didn't. That tree bearing 12 kinds of fruit in their season. What tree bears more than one fruit? The tree of life does. 12 kinds of fruit in its season with leaves that heal the nation like universal aloe vera. Man, it's going to be spectacular. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? You know, I was thinking, if I close the message at this point in the sermon, you might feel like this was pretty thorough and adequate handling of our inheritance. I hope I would never do such a thing, but I want you to realize that I've sort of set you up for something, and I've set you up for something that I hope that you're feeling right now. Something's missing. I like all these details. I like the, ad, the adjectives, uh, this durability of this inheritance in contrast to everything else that's decaying. I like the nouns. Man, those are welcome. Man, I, no more death, no more pain, no more tears. A new heaven, a new earth, a holy city, a transformed body. Man, those are really wonderful things. But I hope there's something nagging at you that something that would be really tragically missing if I were to close the message right now. I want to go back and look at those three passages that we just looked at, beginning in 1 John chapter 3. I told you to put a bookmark or your finger in there or something. I want to look at these passages again to see if we are missing something important. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read it again, and I'm going to call to attention something very important. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. This passage here is developing something, or I want to calling to attention something that stands out in this passage is something that's very important, is that we shall see him as he is being part of the inheritance that we are due. And it's a part that I haven't spent any time on this morning. Going through that list of adjectives and nouns, man, that we really can and should be excited about, I hope something in you is going, hey, what about the fact that we're going to see him as he is? Because that is how we're going to spend the rest of our morning. I want you to see what happens here in this passage. 
When he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be transformed into these glorious, heavenly, eternal beings because, look at that next word, because we shall see him as he is. That's how important this vision of God, this vision of Jesus is. It is how we are transformed. It is the carrot of our inheritance. Let's look at those Revelation passages again. First, Revelation 21. Let's look at them again. I'm going to read all of them again. I want your eye to be tuned into what's really important here. Or I should say what's most important because it's all important. Listen. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Wonderful nouns. But listen to this next verse. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, I wonder why it had to be loud. I wonder if it took a loud voice to penetrate all the noise that we would hear as we're really getting a bunch of stuff that we want. Stuff we get excited about. I don't want to live here in Greenville, so the thought of a new heavens and new earth, man, that sounds awesome. I need something loud to shout through that to tell me what is most important. And this loud voice shouts through this and says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is the, the carrot of our inheritance. The other stuff is awesome. But it's just trappings compared to the carrot of being with him face to face. Look at chapter 22. I, there's no way you could have gotten this because I, I, I left off reading verses 3 and 4. But I'm going to read them together again now and joining in with verse 3 and 4. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 fruits yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Awesome. But now listen to this. No longer will there be anything accursed. The curse has been removed. And here is the beautiful carrot. The curse has been removed and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, in this heaven, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. This is the carrot of our inheritance. This is ultimately what we should be dwelling on, what we should be enjoying there. This is the good. These are the goods of our inheritance, the essential goods of seeing him face to face, the actual visual presence of God. I want to just share a quick passage with you. You don't need to turn there, but a couple of passages. One is 1 Corinthians 13, 12, and the other is 1 Timothy 6, 16. I want you to think about how these, these, these compare. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. But now... Now we see in a mirror dimly because of 1 Timothy 6, 16, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. That's our problem. The curse is in the way. 
We see little glimmers of him in the mirror dimly, but eventually we will see him face to face. Our early church fathers, I I shouldn't say early, our mid-church fathers had a term for this. And it's one that I want to introduce to you because a new word is a beautiful thing. It can be something that sounds academic, or if you embrace it, it can be a parking place for a new thought. And the word I want you to learn today is the word beatific. The beatific vision of God is the carrot. The beatific vision, as far as I and as far as the research that I could find, the first use of it was by a guy named Thomas Aquinas. In his writing, the Summa Theologica, between 1265 and 1264, he addressed this this carrot of the vision of God, seeing God face to face. The next reference that I could find was Benedict XII in 1336, wrote a paper called On the Beatific Vision of God. The next reference I found was Spurgeon in the, oh, excuse me, Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s, writing books and preaching about the beatific vision of God being the real carrot of our inheritance. And then in the 1800s, Spurgeon is preaching on the same thing. And here I am, a Christian in 2015, and I, before these last few weeks, vaguely familiar with the beatific vision, and I'm probably rare But how sweet that we can be equipped this morning with a new parking place for a new thought. That the real carrot of your inheritance and the real thing that you should be looking for. Yes, enjoy the whole nouns and the adjectives. Enjoy all those things. But the real thing you should be looking for is finally seeing him face to face. I highly, highly, highly recommend a book by John Piper. This titled, God is the Gospel. He asks a question in this book over and over again. And by the way, we have many copies. So don't go buy one. We'll give you one. He asks a question in this book that's diagnostic. Here's his question. Would you be okay with heaven if when you arrived, Jesus wasn't there? Is your thought of heaven solely this new body, you know, all these aches and pains gone, these anxieties and things gone, good things to be thinking about. Is your thought of heaven seeing that loved one that you haven't seen forever face to face, finally seeing you know, a, a friend or a family member uh, that you've lost, but would you be okay with heaven if Jesus wasn't there? What he develops in the book and what he says in the next statement hit me like a ton of bricks. He said, people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. People that would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. (laughs) Ha! Man, I need that clarity. Does anybody else need that clarity this morning that he's the carrot? That I am his, but he is mine. These other trappings, and I don't use trappings in a derogatory way. There's nothing wrong with wanting and needing the promise of a new body and things like that. No more tears. Those things, they wouldn't be in there if they didn't have some importance. But compared to the real carrot, they're trappings. And man, how easily we can live 
for just the trappings, forgetting that he's the real carrot of our inheritance. He's the treasure. I just have two application points for this morning, and they're brief. Two application points. Here's the first. I encourage you, and I want to, I'm, they're brief for a reason, because we have a lot of parts going on this morning, moving parts first, and secondly, because life groups can really massage these two things. Here's the first one. Pine to pine for God most. I'm going to say it again. Pine to pine for God most. One of the most honest people in our Bibles, a guy that I really enjoy, is the father in Mark 19, a dad. His son goes into these convulsions and, and, and yeah, that's how you say it, convulsions. And, and he's, he's, he's brokenhearted about what his son is going through. And he speaks to Jesus and he says, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that dude because the honesty. But I want us to have that honesty as we consider pining for God. I pine, but help when I don't pine. Help me in whatever way in my life that I don't desire you. None of us desires God perfectly, so we should all, in humility, ask God to grow in us a desire for Him. Grow in us a desire for Him. And here's the second thing. Knowing, being aware of the inheritance that we are due, knowing and understanding the inheritance that we are due should change how you live. Because you'll start to live like an heir. If I set you down today and I told you, hey, you don't know this yet, but you are actually an heir to a, uh, a multi-million dollar estate with mansions and everything you could ever possibly imagine. And, but you, you're not going to get it for 20 years from now. For the next 20 years, you could endure some really hard things, couldn't you? <laughs> for the next 20 years, you could be okay with that broken down Honda Civic, couldn't you? For the next 20 years, you could endure a job that was just like, man, this thing is such a beating. Because you know what's coming in 20 years. You're not going to have to do that anymore. For the next 20 years, you could press on in something that's really hard and really difficult because you know that that's coming and that's in front of you. That's what it means to be aware of your inheritance and let it affect how you live now. It affected some other people, some people called the heroes of the faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it says, They all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Take out homeland and put inheritance in there. They are being influenced by the inheritance that's coming. I'm going to leave you this morning, before we take our supper, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Fitting, a guy that wrote so much on the beatific vision of God. This quote is from a book called The Christian Pilgrim. It's one of my favorite quotes of any writer, any time frame, ever. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature, and the enjoyment of him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here.
fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Therefore, it becomes us to spend this life only as a journey towards heaven, as it becomes us to make the seeking of our highest end and proper good the whole work of our lives to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? Let's pray. God, we believe, but help our unbelief. We pine for you, but help help us when we don't and in ways that we don't pine for you. We desire you, but help our lack of desire. God, this morning there's a room full of people lifting up this urgent prayer to grow in us the ultimate satisfaction in you as our inheritance teach us to seek your face more than your hand teach us to enjoy you more than what you do for us teach us to be satisfied and delighted in the person of God more than what you have in store for us even God, we are thankful for this sermon. We're thankful for this morning. We're thankful for the time that we've had to spend together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our supper this morning is, has to do with eating. That's kind of an obvious thing, but it has to do with specifically a theology of eating. Since we're talking about this tree of life, the tree that they should have eaten from, it's fitting this morning that we spend a moment talking about some eating Here's a meal that was the anti-meal, what we would call the anti-supper, one that we wouldn't want to eat. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. This is the anti-supper. This is the anti-version of what we do every single week. This was a meal from the wrong tree given by the wrong hand. Now, the serpent doesn't have a hand, so that's figurative. A meal from the wrong tree given by the wrong hand. Consider this passage from John chapter 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Passage after passage in John chapter 6 is developing this reality that he is the meal of life. This bread comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. I'm the proper meal is what he's saying in John chapter 6. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the proper meal compared to the ante supper because this comes from the proper tree. This supper that we take every single week is like eating from the tree of life. And I, I want to encourage you in something. I've never done this before that I know of from the, from the pulpit on the Lord's Supper. But I realize that we've made it very easy for you if you're sick or if you're traveling to hear a sermon. And I want us to be really good at that. I'm thankful that we have that resource. But if you're not sick, like really sick, and you're not traveling, you need to come take this and meal incarnate. Something happens when we gather and take this life meal together. It is a literal meal. I believe in a literal snake and a literal Adam and Eve that took a piece of a literal fruit. And I believe that Jesus said his literal flesh had to be torn. And I believe this meal that we take every week is a literal event where we dine together on a living meal. I encourage you, race to this meal every single week. It is the high point of our morning. It's not the afterthought. It is what every bit of this thing has been working toward, a meal, a life meal with God. And I encourage you, it's the meal from the tree of life. See it as something that you need, something that you race to. Let's go ahead and distribute these elements. I use that uh, illustration, if you were due uh, an inheritance, you know, multi-million dollar or whatever, and uh, if, if, say, there was some news that you would get a little distribution each week, I bet you'd show up. That's what this is. Uh, if you think this is just symbolic, and you think that's just symbolic, we started the morning out with something that's not symbolic. It's more than that. God shows up in that moment and reckons the baptized believer, now baptized believer. And the same is true of this. Is this thing turned into the body and the blood of Jesus? No. But it's also not symbolic only. God shows up in this moment, and we eat from the tree of life together. If you go for weeks at a time without taking the Lord's Supper, without gathering God's people, and you feel like death, duh. That's right. I said duh. I said it in high school. I say it again at 47 years old. Duh. (laughs) Man, you feel like death? Well, just stay out there. You want to come and eat from the tree of life? Then we come together and we do it weekly because we need it. It's our little distribution this week. Let's take in faith and eat. Let's take and drink in faith. Let's continue in song. We are going to have uh, the other ones that were baptized come up here in just a minute and present them to you for membership as well. Um, and at the end of the morning, we may have more people standing up here than are actually sitting out in the seats, so that's all right. Um, this is a, a bittersweet morning for us as a church in that um, nine of our families are going to be leaving, 
and going with this church plant. And uh, it cuts against the grain of most church growth models to be eager to send families out and start new churches. Instead, the other thought might be that you build this church bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, it begs the question of why in the world, especially with all the emotion involved with it, why in the world will we do this? Why are we doing this? And the answer to that question and the truth found in that answer helps us through all of the emotion of saying goodbye to friends, of losing life, losing families, losing people who are gifted and who we know and love, and uh, not being with them each week uh, as much. That's, that's hard and difficult, but the reason why is found in that call of Abraham uh, in Genesis 12 and in Hebrews 11 where he called Abraham to go and he called him to uproot and move so that an inheritance was promised. And we do this and we send this family out with the promise of 1 Timothy 3 that we're the pillar and the buttress of truth, the church, where it is on location, Jesus will be believed on. That's why we're doing this. We're not trying to be creative. Um, we're not trying to be hip and cool. We, we love these people and it's hard. And it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be easy. But the reason why we're doing it is we're trusting that He will fulfill His promise in that people will believe in Jesus where the church gathers. And that's our burden for that part of Rockwall is that the, another church would gather and that people would believe in Jesus. He would be believed on in this world because the pillar and buttress is not a building. It's a people. And thank goodness because this church doesn't have a building. <laughs> that's really good that this is the people gathering and they will be the pillar and the buttress. I, wanna, I just want you to hear that again so that through the anxiety and the fear and the hurt of families moving on to something like this, the truth that why in the world are we doing this? We're doing it so that Jesus will be believed on in the world as this team is so fit and so ready for this and led well by the pastors and the deacons that are going already hopeful and excited. We're excited about what he was going to do, what we'll recount five, six, seven years from now as we hear what God did, even though it was hard. But this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray for these families from Shoemakes all the way around here to the halls that are the carols that are going for this church plant specifically. Um, and then after I'm done praying, we'll be dismissed. And so we, what we want you to do is affirm and encourage these these uh, folks that have been baptized this morning, affirm and encourage, say goodbye. Not forever, but just encourage. Don't just say negative things and cry, okay? <laughs> encourage these families. This is a good thing. It's hard, but it's good. And so I'm going to pray for them. And uh, you pray with me for these families. And Scott's coming up here, and Ben's up here somewhere. You over here? Okay, good. So let's pray for these families and welcome uh, new members. Welcome those that have been baptized um, we love all of you, and we're grateful for what God's going to do, and we're looking forward to what He's going to do uh, very soon. Father, we, uh, this is exciting to see these families being faithful, stepping out in faith and doing something that's not easy, but 
with the hope that you will do, design and build your church and that you're going to do it. We trust you in that. We're grateful that you have chosen us to be a part of something like this. And we pray that you would um, help those of us who are staying here at Cross Point Fellowship Greenville, that you would help us to heal in some ways. But we are asking that you would give this group that's going to Cross Point Community Church, that you would give them endurance, patience with one another and others, that you would give them um, strength and the very small logistic things, and yet patience with the teaching, patience with each other, patience with um, an endurance and strength to be the church in a new situation. And I pray that you would heal their hearts as they leave familiar and kindred and family, as they leave us, you would heal their heart in that. And even though it's bittersweet, you would remind them of the sweetness of what they're a part of. We love you, God, and we're thankful for what you're doing in our midst. Uh, we're very humbled by what you're doing. It's, it's, uh, it's crazy to think that you would allow us to be a part of things such as this. We're grateful, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.